Thanks, Morgan Held. We love you. I love you guys. Thank you so much. I am so grateful I got to be with you all this week as God has been obviously working. I'm so grateful for enthusiasm. You know, the root word of enthusiasm is the word life. And there's a lot of life in this room. And I know, I know, I know sometimes that what seems like life can just be a lot of emotion and things, but I know that there's way more than that going on this week. This Morgan Hill group is, is this Morgan Hill right here? <laughs> and it's not just you guys. I've been so grateful for the enthusiasm, the engagement, the respect, the, the desire to learn and grow. I know that doesn't describe all of you. I know some of you, uh, maybe chapel time is the time you check out the most. And you're kind of interested in other things. And I know that people are in all different places in their time here. And I understand that being a in a relationship with God is a journey. It's a process. Some of you aren't in a relationship with God, probably. And uh, I understand why this wouldn't be something you would love. Why would you? Why would you love being enthusiastic about worshiping a God you don't really know? And you don't realize is loving and altogether lovely and will never disappoint and never fail you. You haven't come to that realization, so I don't, I'm not surprised you'd be disconnected in your time here. But my prayer and our prayer is that this week will show you, not just through the worship team and the staff doing their things, serving you in this way, and the teaching of the word, but through these other believers. We believe the ministry that goes on is not just what goes on up front, but in some ways, even more powerfully, what's going on alongside you. When you see other people worshiping God, pouring out their heart to him in a realization that Jesus saved their lives, that's real. And that's a witness to the truth of who Jesus is. And so the ministry doesn't just go in this direction, it goes in this direction. And I hope you're being ministered to by the other people in their level of engagement, their love for Jesus that's obvious, their enthusiasm. I pray that'll never die. And may I say something? I must say, please, young people, don't isolate yourself from the old people in your churches. I know that can happen, that youth groups can become sort of a church within a church. Don't let that happen. You need those old people, and they need you. Seriously, yeah, you, you do. And, and I'm serious about that because otherwise, you know, the young people just all hang out together just pooling their ignorance and the old people just get more and more cranky if you don't, if you don't work together. So the Bible actually says the older should be discipling the younger and there should be that kind of relationship. So don't, don't isolate yourselves. Really, the, the, the older folks need this enthusiasm. They need this life. What's that? We need you over yes, thank you, thank you. I, well, we need you young, youngins. Well, I, you know, I was a youngin once. I was. Can you believe that I was 15 at one point, exactly where you are? I, you want to see a picture? Yeah. <laughs> want to see a picture of me when I was 15? Yeah. <laughs> now remember, it's 1979. I was listening to lots of earth, wind, and fire at this time. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, here's what's funny about that. Uh, my kids looked at that picture and they said, Dad, middle parts are in again. That's really good. But yeah, there I am at 15. And I want you to know, I can remember what it was like to be 15. It was a long time ago, but I can remember. I can remember all the pressures and the tensions and, and the desire to, to look good and look cool and not look foolish and ha have some security somewhere that wasn't coming from the sources it often does for a kid in my life at that time. I, I remember and my heart aches for you in these times of your life. And I must tell you, this day is, I believe, much more challenging to live in the truth and walk in the truth and be a faithful Christian than it was when I was your age. And I, I realize that. I realize the way the culture is increasingly what we call secular and even hostile to Christ and his kingdom and what it stands for. And so I have, I have a heart that grieves for the challenges you have. You have a world of potential good on your phone, and you have a world of potential evil on your phone, and, and you have to make choices constantly to follow the truth or listen to lies. And so I understand what, what you're up against, and we're never free from it. It's not like I've arrived in any way in these things, but I have been at it a while, and I want you to know that God is faithful, and God is good, and he's gracious, and he's more loving than you'll ever fully understand. I believe for all of eternity, we will all marvel increasingly at the glorious goodness of God. And his majesty and his magnitude and holiness and jealousy and, and truthfulness and faithfulness and goodness. He's a good God and I want you to know that desperately. If you know him, I want you to know it more. And if you don't know him, I want you to know it for the first time. But we're going to look at some more big old sections of the Gospel of John tonight. So if you'd open your Bible to John chapter 14. I want to look at... Again, some big sections of Jesus' teaching about himself, about our, uh, us, those of us who are his, and about what it means to be faithful to him. And just, I'm not going to wait to get to these points. These are the four big ideas that we're going to see. There are other, lots of other great things in here. I wish we had weeks and weeks, but there are four huge ideas I want to make sure you don't miss in these sections of the Bible we're going to be reading. The first one is what we've been saying all week. Jesus is the way, truth, and life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There are other things that are true, but the reason they're true is because they're rightly associated with Jesus because he's the source of all truth for us. The second thing is we need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need him. He's the one who takes the objective truth outside of ourselves, whether we like it or believe it, it's still true, but the Spirit's the one who we need to make that outside of us truth, inside of us truth. Objective truth, subjective truth, that is transformative truth. And as I prepare and pray and think about preaching, I know that I can't convince anyone of the truth of God's word. The Spirit inspired this word. The Spirit's the one who changes our hearts from hard-heartedness to Godwardness. 
and gives us conviction of sin, who leads us into all truth, illumines our minds and changes us. We need him. If he doesn't do the work, it will not be sufficient work for, ma for making us disciples of Jesus. Three, followers of Jesus will be hated. We've got to know this. We've got to realize this. I don't like fine print. I love that God doesn't have fine print. You ever listen to those commercials where it's maybe for a drug of some kind, a prescription that you can get, or to help you with some physical problem? And then at the end of the commercial, by law, they have to list all the possible side effects. And so they hire some man or woman who can talk really fast. You know what I'm talking about? And it gives, and you keep hearing these things along the way, like blindness or, you know, uh, uh, hemorrhaging. And like, what? Yeah, well, say that again, but before you know it, it's, go, it's over. They don't want you to actually hear what all the side effects are. So they do what they have to legally, but they, want, they do it in a way where you, it's almost impossible to actually hear what the potential side effects are. You know, that's how so much of our world operates. It tells us what they want us to hear, but not the fine print, not the side effects, not the ramifications that are there. And so we need to back up and pay attention. But with God, he's never like that. He, he never talks real fast so you don't understand what he's saying. He makes it as clear as he can. And, and God could not make it more clear that if you become a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of his, a disciple of his, you will be hated by the world. We'll see that. And there's a glorious ability to persevere in the midst of that persecution as we follow the man who was killed, was murdered for the truth. Finally, we represent Jesus. We rep the king. He, he's our king, and we represent him as his ambassadors. So as we read through these sections of the Bible, keep looking for these four things, okay? These four things. You ready? John chapter 14. Oh, don't you love the word of God? I do. Oh, by the way, I, before I dive in, I don't want to forget to say this. I, I am so grateful for this worship team. They have been so, one. you know, uh, yes, all, all but one are Biola students where I teach. And you know what's cool? They're not only putting their musical gifts to work, it's so obvious they're putting all those Bible classes you take at Biola to work in the way they're thinking about the truth that they're communicating through music. I absolutely love it. I have loved working with Mikey and Sarah and the other leaders here. And you know, one of the most thankless jobs on the planet is tech people. So Kayla and Hannah in the back, would you guys stand up? Stand up, ladies. Yay, there you are. Let me tell you, those of us up here depend so much on them, and they're not only excellent in what they do technically, they're really a joy to work with. And so I'm just so grateful for people like that. And I want to thank the youth pastors, the counselors this week. You guys are the heroes. Would you all stand up, actually? Stand up, youth pastors and counselors. Come on, guys, stand up. Thank you all. 
I've been telling them in our council meetings in the morning that, that they're the ones in the trenches. They're the ones that the preaching and the worship, we hand the baton to them. And they're getting it into your lives. They're in the trenches. They're going home with you for the long haul. And really, they're the heroes this week. They gave up a week where they could have been doing a lot of other things, you know. And, and they, they chose to come here and, and get really tired and put up with a lot of different things that, that can really make them grow, which is they're here to grow too, not just... And so, so I'm thankful for you dear leaders who are in the trenches getting this done. So thank you. So let's, let's listen to Jesus. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. You're good to us. Amen. John chapter 14 is where we're starting. Verse 15, listen, 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 so good. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's real simple and real hard. You can't keep his commandments if you don't know his commandments. So you got to know the Bible. What a definition of love, right? There's so many sentimental uh, just purely romantic or sexual ideas of love in our society. And Jesus says, no, love for me is demonstrated in all sorts of ways, but fundamentally in your love for one another, as we'll see, but also in just obeying me, doing what I say. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a comforter, a parakletos, one who comes alongside and cares for you the way I've been caring for you. Is that amazing? Jesus has been with his disciples caring for them personally and intimately on a daily basis. And he says, I'm sending another one. In other words, he's going to come in and play the role I've been playing. And so the Holy Spirit's not a force. He's a person, which is why we use personal pronouns to describe him. He is a person. And Jesus says he's going to move in. And he is going to be a helper like I've been. To be with you forever. And he does come in the life of a believer and implant new life in us through the person of the Spirit and then starts transforming us as disciples. He makes us new creatures in Christ, but the Spirit is our helper who will be with us forever. Even the Spirit of truth. There's our theme. He's the Spirit of truth. He's not just a Spirit who makes you feel good, but a Spirit who brings truth whom the world cannot receive. There is a radical difference between someone who's trusted Jesus and someone who hasn't. And I just want to say to you, if you're here this week, and, and, and maybe you're hard-hearted, and I pray God will soften your heart, but maybe you're not hard-hearted, but you, you love to ask questions, and you love to think and seek answers. But the reason we have open minds, as a wise man once said, is so we can eventually close them on something true not just to keep them perpetually open. And so we are seeking truth, and when we find it, we need to embrace it and take it to ourselves. And the spirit of truth does that for us. He brings it to us. And the world can't receive him because it hasn't received Jesus, right? Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. We serve a risen Savior. You also will live. 
In that day, you will know that I am in, the, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, there it is again, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, another disciple, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Third time he's basically said, if you love me, you obey me, right? And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. There it is again. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, there he is again, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will teach you these things. Now, what does it mean for the Spirit to teach us? So I went to a big state university. I was a philosophy major. And I didn't have one Christian professor in my five years of undergraduate education. I didn't have one theist professor. In other words, I didn't have one professor that I knew of who actually believed in God. I had a couple of agnostics, those who said, well, I don't know. But none who were committed to a belief in God. So five years of studying in, in the university and not one who claimed to believe in God. Not, never mind Christ, but even God. And I took a course, New Testament as Literature, with one of, one of my most favorite profs. I just love Dean Beeching. He was the Dean of Humanities. And he was an atheist, but he was intrigued by the New Testament. So it was a new interest of his. And Dean Beeching, he was actually learning New Testament Greek. And I'd been reading the Bible my whole life, though. And this class had about 25 students, all upper division students. And I was a freshman in college who had never really studied at all before I went to college. I was admitted into college on academic probation. My first day as a freshman, it was like, welcome to college, you're on probation based on your high school performance. We don't think you'll last a week, basically, is what they're saying to you. But, 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 so I worked hard, and I took New Testament as literature, and it was fascinating to watch my professor and watch the fellow students be able to study the historical linguistic aspects of a piece of literature like the New Testament. But it wasn't giving them life. It, it wasn't giving them uh, a, a relationship with God because they were of the world in that class. They weren't of the spirit. The spirit wasn't at work in them. And even though I, would, I had been a terrible student and, and, and I was starting from scratch, I was in this class with some of the best students in my 18,000 student university, and yet I had insights into the Bible, none of them, including my prof, had because the spirit was at work. And they all thought I was really smart. Even though I wasn't, I was just someone who had this unfair advantage called the Holy Spirit. The actual one who inspired that word is one I had living in me. So they could get the, the historical aspects right, but not in a way that changed their lives. Not in a way that transformed them. Not in a way that led to a relationship with God. Uh, and so, I thought somebody had a hand raised back there. I'm happy to ask, answer questions. I really am. Uh, so, so the Spirit's at work, right? So that's great. All right, one more. Uh, let's look at another passage. Chapter 15. 
Verse 18. Listen to Jesus again. By the way, you all have red letter Bibles. Well, not all of you. Look at that. None of you have red letter Bibles. I'm so glad. I do sometimes. So they're not as popular as they used to. None of you do. You do. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to go on a tangent, but I think red, red letters, red letter Bibles. Yeah, I don't think it's a good thing, even though you and I have it. But let me just say this. I can't help but say this. I actually, red letter Bibles were first invented by a guy in 1899. And, I, and he had some well-intentioned meaning behind it. But I've got, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Because first of all, it's all God's word. Jesus was quoting it all the time when it's from the Old Testament. And, and what's up with the Father's words not getting red letters? Right? Have you ever thought about that? Or the Spirit's word not, not getting red letters? And, and, and so it can create a weird Bible within a Bible. But it sure makes it easy to find things. All right. Um, so don't think you got to have one of those to be cool. Even though I do. And I don't think, I wish I didn't. But anyway, here we go. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 18. Here we go. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you kept my word, they will also keep yours. But if all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming. Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So, when you become a Christian, you sign up to be hated. How's that for no fine print? How's that for shooting straight? Uh, and it's part of the deal. And see, what has to happen is you need to love Jesus more than the world, more than popularity, more than being cool, more than approval of man, more than likes on social media more than followers or subscribers or whatever it is that makes us feel like we're important. We, we need to give those things up as desires when we follow Jesus because Jesus says, if you love me and follow me, you'll be hated like I was. That's why Jesus says this. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it 
for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Following Jesus isn't an easy path. It's not some path that leads to health and wealth and prosperity and popularity. Nothing wrong with those things. But it's not what we pursue when we follow Jesus. Jesus has to become our our life. He's the one we depend on. And he is our life. And compared with knowing him, all the hatred the world may throw our way when we follow him can compare to the love we receive in relationship with him. If you have been raised with Christ, listen to this, Paul to the Colossians. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you've died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. You see, Jesus is not something you add to your already busy life as a part of your life. He is your life because he is the way, the truth, and the life. That is a great description of what it means to be a disciple. Not a religious person just or a moral person or just someone who knows religious answers but someone who finds Christ at the very heart of everything. And everything else revolves around him as if he's the sun around which everything else revolves. And so Jesus is our life. He's everything to us. Two more passages. John 16, verse 5. B. Same themes we started off with. Watch, we'll keep seeing those four themes. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, remember, who's the helper? Holy Spirit, there you go. The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says it's to your advantage that I go. It's better. That's so hard for me to believe. He's saying, if I gave you the option between Jesus as he was for 33 years in the flesh with his disciples or the Holy Spirit, the way he indwells in the life of believers, Jesus says it's better that you have the Spirit the way he's working now. It's hard to believe, but it's true, and we need to take Jesus at his word. One more passage, chapter 17, verse 13. Listen to Jesus again. Let's give him the floor. He's praying to his father. This is actually the Lord's prayer. What we call the Lord's prayer is the disciples' prayer that he gives them to pray. This is the Lord's prayer. This is what he's praying. Verse 20 of chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us sitting here in 2022 at Hume Lake. That's us that Jesus prayed for in this moment 2,000 years ago. 
those who believed in him, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We are one in Christ. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you hear that? Jesus says, I want there to be a oneness among my people, grounded in the fact that they've seen my glory, that they have seen the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have for us so that we then have that love poured in our hearts and then it flows out in our love for others. Yes, we love the world, but our love starts with our love for the people of God, that we may be one. That's why I wore this T-shirt Biola gave me. All as one, that's how we're to live. There's a oneness, not based on our demographic similarities, our racial similarities, our sports teams we like, or the music we like, or anything that the world defines people by so intensely. No, our oneness in Christ transcends, goes beyond all those other things people tend to group around or divide over. And none of those divisions or motivations to group are what drives us. We are the people of God from every Every tongue, tribe, nation, and people who come together around Jesus, we should live in a way where people who aren't Christians should look at us and say, what in the world makes you know each other? You have nothing in common. And the fact is, we do, and it's the most important thing in the world, it's Jesus. He is the one who unites us. That's why divisions in the church, that's why when we go through the doors of the church, just dividing up, like I was saying before, where we put the kids over here, the young people over here, and the, the, the old people over here, and the singles here, and the young marrieds here, and the young marrieds with children here, and, the, and we, we just divide up based on all these common interests when we need to have friends that we would never be friends with if it weren't for Jesus. Because we're family. Do you know I have more in common with a little girl who loves Jesus right now in, an Indian, in a slum in India than I do with a man who's my age, my race, my socioeconomic status, has all the same interests and hobbies as I do. He and I have nothing to do with each other compared to this little girl in a slum in India right now who loves Jesus like I do. We can't find our unity in all our hobbies all the things that make relationships easy because Jesus has to be our oneness, our source of our unity in all things. Jesus is our source of unity. And so, Jesus is our life. Let me just fly through some things really quickly. The goal of our growth as disciples is not our growth. Our growth is a means to something greater, which is intimacy with God and enjoyment of him which glorifies him and bears fruit in our lives. 
1 Peter 3, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Please don't go about the Christian life ever disconnected from the finished work of Christ. Please. It'll become every other religion. Every other religion is what we do to earn God's favor. Earn God's forgiveness. Earn relationship with him. Christianity is what God has done to win us for himself. To save us for himself. It's God's work. So let's never disconnect what we do from what God has done and finished in Christ. Okay? All right. What we do then is walk in newness of life based on the life we have in Christ. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what does it look like to walk in newness of life? How do we do this? Well, we do it by practicing habits of grace. That's what I call them. It's a book by David Mathis that I stole the title from. Um, habits of grace is... is what we devote ourselves to, which are spiritual disciplines, practice with our bodies, mostly in normal life, rooted in the local church. And they're habits of grace, which bring growth in godliness, which is a gift through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we've been seeing in Jesus' ministry. This is the seminar I did the other day, and quite a few people said, ah, all my kids need that, not just the ones that go. So here you go. These are the nine things I think we devote ourselves to, based on the Holy Spirit's work that we just saw in John 16, right? The spirit of truth. I think if you devote yourself to these nine things, you will grow. When I read the Bible, there are other things that are important as well, but I think these are the big categories. We devote ourselves to being men and women of the word and prayer and worship and giving and serving and proclamation and fellowship and suffering and missions all in the context of the local church. And these all work beautifully interdependently, dependent on the spirit and rooted in the gospel. These things are what we practically do on a daily basis to grow. If you get after these things for the long haul, I believe you will be amazed at how much you kill sin, become like Christ, and have an impact for Christ and his kingdom in this world. I think you will be amazed. So, those are the things we do, okay? Can I, move? Can I go to the next slide? No. What do you want to do until we go to the next slide? All right, there we go. Ah, look what Jesus says. We'll be hated as we do these things. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What's going on there? I think he's saying if you really love me, you'll obey me. And if you obey me, you will realize that I am life and I am worth anything. I'm worth far more, infinitely more than anything this world offers you. And so you're willing to sacrifice anything for this world. And so you acknowledge Jesus. You proclaim Christ. You make him known in this world. And that means we are people of truth. We're people of the word. Knowing Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we've been emphasizing the gospel that Jesus took our place. But becoming a Christian means putting Jesus at the center of everything and then seeing everything else in light of who he is. Everything. Food. Sex, art, recreation, uh, family, uh, music, food, whatever it is, everything, dating, romance, 
All of it, ministry, everything now is seen in light of who Jesus is. That's called developing a Christian worldview, a way you view everything. is now according to Jesus and his word and his ways. Nothing is left uninvaded and taken over by the lordship of Christ. Nothing. You don't have your Christian stuff over here and then all the other stuff. It's all under Christ's authority and lordship. He's the king of kings. He's the creator, as we saw in the beginning of the week. And so that means we needed to be devoted to be men and women of the word, to know what he commands and know how he views everything so that we learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates to the point where you won't even laugh at something that may be objectively funny, but if it's sinful and dishonoring to God or destructive to people, you learn not to laugh at it. It's, it's a way of viewing everything, and truth is how we get there. We need to know the truth. You know, the world used to have a very objective idea of truth and understand that, that that's what we pursue. Does anybody know the motto of Harvard University? There it is. Veritas, Latin word for truth. That's what universities used to be about, going and finding truth. But now we live in a confused world. That is, is, as we said in the beginning of the week, just distorted in our understanding. In, in the most elite academic institutions and in universities like I went to, people talk all the time in ways that make no sense. They're incoherent. And, and I think we're in a time where this truth vacuum is starting to collapse in on itself. Let, let me read something to you I came across that a theologian wrote talking about the way people think these days. Now, now I'm just highlighting these. So this, this deals with, with uh, sexual issues of sexuality and issues of, of race and how people are thinking and talking these days. But, but you need to back up and say, have I been influenced by a culture that talks this way and I don't see it as lies and incoherence? Listen to what this theologian says. He says, follow me in an intellectual exercise. Here we go. This is a hypothetical person talking the way they talk at universities now. Watch. See, I, I'm concerned for you seniors and juniors who in a matter of months will be in philosophy classes at places like Berkeley and Cal State Fullerton and having philosophy props, profs twist your brain in knots. And, and so th this is how they talk, and they don't even realize it. Gender is a social construct. You know, the society just creates this idea of male and female, Period. At the same time, it's always good when women can break glass ceilings, you know, attain the high levels of, of prominence. We should celebrate all the firsts we see women do because women are certainly not men. By women, of course, I mean anyone who identifies as a woman, including people who we used to know as men. Sex is a socially derived category that assigns certain physical characteristics and differences and labels those differences as male or female. There are no immutable distinctions between men and women. We're all on a spectrum. We can all change. Unless we're talking about sexual desires, coming out as gay or lesbian is something we should all be proud of because people can't change the way they're born. In fact, it should be illegal for doctors and counselors and religious leaders to try to change people who are born a certain way. But some people definitely should be able to change the way they were born in terms of gender, and doctors and counselors and religious leaders should do everything they can to encourage this change. Sometimes our bodies don't align with our true selves. Never forget that. Your self-identity is your genuine identity. 
Except when it comes to race. You, you know this. You know this is. You understand what this is? Okay. It's, it's a satirical take on the way people think at universities. It's not saying these things are true, right? We clear on that? Okay. He says, listen, your self-identity is your genuine identity. Except when it comes to race and ethnicity, you should never claim an ethnic or racial identity that isn't yours. Be very careful what you eat and what you wear. You can't appropriate someone else's culture. But you can't appropriate someone else's gender or go with no gender at all. We've all been socialized into a gender system that tells us how to think and how to act. And the sooner we do away with the notion of gender binary altogether, the better. But just remember, women have been held back by all the evils of patriarchy. Women are oppressed. Men are oppressors. That's a fact. Not that women or men are anything more than a fluid and culturally conditioned modes of self-identification. Obviously, still, we shouldn't do away with women's sports. It's essential that every college has as many sports for women as for men. We must have equal opportunities for both sexes, sports for women, sports for men. Those categories are absolutely critical. I know it's complicated, but don't worry. The less you think about it, the more it makes sense. If men want to participate in women's sports, that's also really good because of sexual differences upon which the existence of men and women's sports rests. Those differences don't really exist. But don't get me wrong. Women have it a lot harder than men, trying to balance being a mom and pursuing a career. Just to be clear, though, men can also be mothers. Birthing persons can come in all genders. Not that gender's anything more than what our culture tells us. Don't, for, don't forget, and don't forget that women get paid less than men in the workplace, and women are underrepresented in Fortune 500 country, con, uh, companies, and we still have never had a woman president, or at least not a president we took to be a woman. It's hard to say what a woman is without biologists weighing in. Not that being a man or woman is rooted in biology. That goes without saying. Well, whatever a woman is, we all know this much for sure. Women have a right to do whatever they want with their bodies. Reproductive freedom is the most important women's issue of our time. But I'm not saying that only women reproduce. Men can reproduce too. Being a woman has many challenges. That's why it's important to protect women and make them feel safe. Except in restrooms and in locker rooms and in prisons, then it's okay for women to feel unsafe around men because everyone knows these men are really women. It's also worth remembering that men and women don't have to look a certain way, but if a man becomes a woman, he should definitely pick a woman's name and try to look not to look masculine anymore. I mean, if there were such a thing as masculinity, because obviously there isn't, but sometimes there is, and then it's completely toxic. Here's the bottom line. Gender's a social construct, period. I know it's complicated, but don't worry about it. The less you think about it, the more it'll make sense. Now, I read that to you, not, not to highlight this as the issue or anything, although more and more, not because we as Christians choose it, you are going to get defined as a horrible person if you don't talk this way, if you don't think this way. And, and I don't think this should be the issue for us. Jesus should be the issue for us. But how many times have you met a person say, oh, you're a Christian? So you think, you think homosexuality is sinful? Well, yeah, and so I think my pride is sinful, too, and I think my judgmental spirit is sinful. And, and, and they'll say, why are you so angry? And I'll say, I, I'm not angry. I'm really not. Yeah, but you just said this lifestyle is sinful. Yeah, and I said I have lots of sin in my lifestyle, too, that I'm trying to put to death because I don't want sin in my life, but I'm not angry. You are such an angry person. Well, you're actually making me angry by saying I'm angry all the time. 
but I'm really not angry. And I read this because I want you to realize there is an incoherence. And incoherence means it just doesn't align with reality or, or even logic. And, and so please realize, if you buy into this, you are buying into a world that is completely disconnected from what will give you life. Now, now there are all sorts of issues. I, I could have read something like this and in, in sort of, uh, you could say, well, you know, some people are racist and we're not going to do anything about that. No, we should as Christians because all people are made in the image and likeness of God. And there's no place for any shred of racism in our hearts at all. We should put that to death, right? We don't believe that being addicted to substances is good, right? Or, 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 or murder is good. There are all sorts of things. And everybody's got lines. Everybody's got morals. Everybody's got places they will say, well, that's too far. And so I just don't want you to feel like you need to go along with, with nonsensical ways of talking that completely defy reality. If, if you're going to be accepted in this world, the fact is you won't be. You won't be accepted, and you need to be okay with that. It's part of the deal. Look at what it says all the way in the prophet Isaiah rebuking the nation. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Did you hear that? Can this describe our day better than it does? It's not just Isaiah's day that this describes. It's our day like crazy. You know, that truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and we as Christians are to be salt and light and stand true to what God calls us to, realizing that everything God made according to his design is for our good and our joy and his glory. In, including being male and female, including being everything he created us to be. And so please don't feel like you, you need to go along with the, the tidal wave in our culture. And here's what I want to say. We Christians need to be really good at distinguishing between a cultural revolution that is driving a God-dishonoring, human-destroying value system. We need to distinguish between that, between that which we oppose and individuals who are caught up in it. Even some of you here, I have no doubt, are, are having all kinds of struggles. A dear young person said to me one time, Eric, what if I wake up one day and I find out that I'm another gender than I thought I was, or, or I'm not heterosexual? And I say, oh, dear. If, in that case, we can talk about same-sex attraction. We can talk about confusion, but let's not think you're going to wake up something different than what God created you to be. And that's the only way to life, is to live according to God's design. And please don't feel like you need to be a jellyfish going along with the culture and wherever it's leading you into whatever lies it may be leading you. Be a dolphin that jumps right over those waves in the other direction. Be someone who is is salt and light and proclaimers of truth because you believe that to love people, you need to give them the truth where we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried by every wind of doctrine, but by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Don't get caught up in the lies. Don't believe all the hype. Go to God's word and know it and, and, and have a view of the world filtered through it and live according to it. It's the only way to life. Because Peter says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth 
for a sincere brotherly love, one another, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. See, truth is at the heart of real love. It's not just some benign affirmation, some weak sentimentality. It's grounded in truth. And if you're not loving grounded in truth, you're not loving, no matter what it may look like. Because to love people means we love the truth and want them to love it too. If you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you first go to Jesus as the source of truth, and then you live it out yourself in obedience to the truth, as Peter just said, and then you represent Jesus in the world as his voice of truth, his ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. And then, then Paul goes right into it to the Corinthians. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're his representatives. We rep the king. That's what we do. Because we realize that apart from the truth, people perish. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives us who are those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. So love is not this weak thing. It's something grounded in truth, strong truth. And if you love people and don't care that they know the truth, you don't love them, no matter what the world tells you. And we find out that people are saved and sanctified by the truth. That's what Jesus says. And that's what he, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples and you know the truth. And the truth will set you free. I want you to be free. God wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to be stuck in this world that will keep you in bondage of lies. Listen to this description of the church as we close. If, you delay, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And what is the household of God here? The church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of truth. You all know what a pillar is, right? Anybody know what a buttress is? Yes. Yes. It's an outside archway. My favorite term in all of architecture is flying buttress. I have a picture of a buttress. You want to see it? There it is. Look at that. Yes. There it is. There it is. Listen, listen. You know, these, these old buildings with stained glass windows with lead in them and made of granite, they needed to be supported from the inside, which is what the pillar is, but they needed to be supported by the outside, which is what the buttress is, to keep the walls from folding over. That's the main job of the church, to be a pillar and buttress of truth, to do our role, to represent the truth of God because we belong to him and his truth has transformed our lives. Yes, we are called to do this. This is a great picture of the church. I know we're supposed to be compassionate. I know we're supposed to be gracious, but we're also supposed to be people who hold the truth up and make sure it's on prominent display for the world to see because the truth saves and the truth makes us holy and the truth brings us into a relationship with God because he's the God of truth. You know what? Too many Christians are flying under the radar. Too many Christians are, are hiding their faith. Too many Christians are, are walking in mediocre, lukewarm ways that's not going to invite any scorn from the world. We need to be Christians who are bold. You know, I have all these unsaved friends, these non-Christian friends, and they're bold in what they believe. Whether it's karma, whether it's uh, their, their, their vegan diet, whether it's their, their political views, whether it's their belief that yoga is the answer to everything. I mean, it's amazing how bold they are in this worldview they have. 
How about some Christians stepping up and being bold? How about not walking in a mediocre, lukewarm, jellyfish kind of way? Now, I know for a fact there are plenty of you who are walking in the light and walking in boldness. But tonight, I just want to challenge you. I don't know if you've heard a message like this before. I don't know if you'll hear one again. I don't know. But if tonight you want to say, you know what, I've been walking a mediocre, lukewarm, worldly, fleshly path where I don't look very different than someone who hasn't ever trusted Jesus. You're a Christian, but you look like the world. It may be for a little while. It may be for quite a while. Now, I've had conversations with Sam this week. But if today's the day in the most friendly audience you'll ever be able to take a stand for Jesus in, if you want to say tonight and from now on, I'm going to be a disciple. I am a disciple, but I'm going to be a disciple who doesn't fly under the radar anymore. I'm, I'm not going to be a disciple who flirts with the world all the time. I'm going to be one who's known for who I follow and who I believe And I'm going to be one who lives according to the truth and not constantly flirting with the world anymore. If that describes you, would you stand up now so I can pray for you? Stay standing. Stay standing. Standing is a beautiful posture to say, I'm going to stand with Jesus. Yes. And listen, let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for these who've stood up tonight and and say, I'm I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to be an ambassador. I'm not just going to be a person who gets by and happens to be a Christian. I'm going to be someone who finds Christ as my life and wants desperately for people in my life to know that. So, Lord, I pray that you would protect these ones who stood. There will be attack, no doubt, spiritually, and maybe even from people in this room, maybe from their own family members who who think they're crazy to live the way they do. Well, Lord, it's good to know that Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. And, Lord, I'm grateful that you warned us we'll be hated, and I pray you would fortify these dear ones and they would be willing to take a stand, whatever that means, in a culture that is increasingly hostile to what it means to be a Christian. Lord, I pray we would love and be patient and long-suffering, that we would let you take vengeance like you promise you will so we don't have to take it in our own hands. Lord, I pray that we would be examples of those who've been changed by Jesus, the one who loved to death. Lord, help us love to death and embolden and strengthen us all, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you.